Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Thursday, May 28th. I'm Lorraine Cáceres. Here are today's headlines. Violent protests erupt over the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. The unarmed African-American man's family calling for murder charges against those involved. A grim reality, America counts 100,000 deaths from coronavirus. As states reopen, fear that the death toll could surge again. And Twitter feud, President Trump escalates his fight with Twitter, promising an executive order against all social media companies to curtail their power. We begin today with the growing outrage over the death of an unarmed African-American man in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 46-year-old George Floyd was a father of two. Authorities say Floyd had some sort of confrontation with police. The far powerful images caught on video of the arrest have sparked violent protests and demands for change. Andrea Linares has the latest. Please! Please, I can't breathe! Please, man! The world is reacting in disbelief to these horrific images. A white officer digging his knee into the neck of George Floyd until he lost consciousness and later died. The mayor of Minneapolis is calling for that officer's arrest. I've been asking myself that core underlying question, why is the officer that, that killed George Floyd uh, not in jail right now? And I can't answer that question. Overnight, protests erupted from Minnesota to California. Tonight was a different night of protesting than it was just the night before. Angry protesters clashed with police. Some were pepper sprayed and later things took a turn for the worse. An AutoZone building ended up engulfed in flames. Firefighters rushed to extinguish the blaze. Flashbangs and fireworks rang out in the streets, and some took advantage of the situation and looted local stores. The four officers involved in the man's death have been fired from the Minneapolis Police Department, but Floyd's family wants murder charges to be filed. We need justice. Yeah. Those four officers need to be arrested. They executed my brother in broad daylight. People had to film that. People had to see that. People pleaded for his life. President Trump also addressing the issue. A very sad event. A very, very sad, sad event. And former VP Joe Biden also weighing in. George Floyd's life mattered. It mattered as much as mine. It mattered as much as anyone's in this country. The officer with his knee on Floyd's neck said to be 44-year-old Derek Chauvin, a Minneapolis police force veteran who reportedly was among several officers investigated after a fatal shooting in 2006. A grand jury later declined to indict. Another officer seen in the video holding back the growing crowd identified as Tu Thao. At this point, that this investigation must proceed with a degree of of objectivity. We're not going to prejudge the facts, though the video is so clear before our eyes. Why? Because at the end of this process, we want nobody to be able to question the process. The video was recorded Monday night after police say they got a call from a convenience store about a forgery in progress. Authorities say Floyd was resisting arrest. 
But so far, this surveillance footage from a nearby restaurant appears to contradict police accounts. The Minneapolis Police Department has not released body cam footage for now. A fire department report says when they met up with EMTs on the way to the hospital, medics performed pulse checks several times but found none. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. Thank you, Andrea Linares, for that report. And protests also in Michigan after another video of potential police brutality hit social media. The video shot in Washtenaw County shows a white officer repeatedly punching an African-American woman. Another officer also allegedly using a stun gun on her husband after police responded to reports of a shooting in the area. More than 100 protesters then took to the streets of Ann Arbor Wednesday to condemn the violence. Police officials say the two officers have been placed on administrative duty pending an investigation. And it's a staggering, jaw-dropping number. 100,000 people have now died of coronavirus in the U.S. The rate of infections nationwide slowing down, but the number of cases in many states still growing. This is the country's top infectious disease expert says we still have time to prevent a second wave. A grim milestone in the fight against coronavirus. Nearly 900 Americans have died every day by COVID-19 since early February. President Trump made no mention of those lost during his trip to Florida Wednesday, but his 2020 opponent, former Vice President Joe Biden, says many deaths could have been avoided. There are moments in our history so grim, so heartrending, that they're forever fixed in each of our hearts. A shared grief. Today is one of those moments. New case counts are now falling in states like Texas, Michigan, and those hard-hit northeastern states, but steeply rising in Alabama, Arkansas, West Virginia, and California with at least 100,000 known infections. Let's not forget the most vulnerable amongst us. The nation moving forward with reopening. Washington, D.C. will lift its stay-at-home order on Friday. More Las Vegas hotels are planning to reopen June 4th. The pandemic continuing to take a toll on businesses and workers. Boeing laying off more than 6,700 employees Wednesday. Marriott International warning of a significant number of layoffs later this year. Other businesses banding together to raise awareness. Lights going dark briefly in Times Square to symbolize what organizers say is the effect of insurers denying businesses coverage for coronavirus-related losses. All this as the nation's top infectious disease expert says a second wave is not inevitable as long as states reopen correctly. Cautiously optimistic that we would have a vaccine towards the end of this year and the beginning of next year. Updating the timeline regarding vaccine development. I still think that we have a good chance if all the things fall in the right place that we might have a vaccine that would be deployable by the uh, by the end of the year. Meanwhile, New York City, the epicenter of the outbreak, has announced it will begin phase one of reopening in the first or second week of June. 
And Americans have filed more than 40 million jobless claims in the past 10 weeks as another 12.1 million people filed for benefits last week. The economic struggle is growing as many workers and businesses remain uneasy about the future. Many states have begun to reopen their economies, but the process has been uneven. Companies continue shedding workers as the economic outlook for the rest of the year remains quite dark. Meanwhile, President Trump is preparing to sign an executive order aimed at curbing existing protections for social media companies. This comes two days after the president lashed out at Twitter for applying fact checks to two of his tweets. Claudia Oceda has the details from Washington, D.C. That's right, a war that started with Twitter, the president's favorite way of communication now could extend to Google and Facebook. The president's executive order seeks to diminish the power of large social media platforms by trying to reinterpret a critical 1996 law that shields websites and tech companies from lawsuits. The order argues the protections hint mainly on tech platforms operating in good faith and that social media companies have not. Now, experts are doubtful that this order can be carried out without an act of Congress. Trump is accusing Twitter of interfering in the presidential election, but Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey wrote that they will continue to point out incorrect information about elections globally and that they will continue to connect the dots, conflicting statements so that the people can judge for themselves. Now, CEO Mark Zuckerberg says that social media should not be the arbiter of truth. Now. Back to you. Thank you, Claudio Seda in Washington, D.C. And joining me now is Harold Feld. He's the Senior Vice President of Public Knowledge, an organization promoting open Internet. Harold, what's your reaction to the president's executive order? Well, uh, I would say this is the worst case scenario that the drafters of the First Amendment had in mind. Uh, the president of the United States using his uh, political power to uh, browbeat uh, companies into elevating his uh, perspectives, his views, uh, to shut off uh, public criticism and uh, to uh, uh, potentially uh, silence uh, critics and political rivals. Harold, you actually wrote a book about regulating digital platforms titled The Case for the Digital Platform Act. What legal hurdles could this executive order face? Well, it's important to point out that there are some very real issues here. Uh, we do have longstanding concerns about when a few companies uh, control how Americans communicate or how we uh, receive news, and we do see the real impacts of uh, disinformation and manipulation in social media. Uh, and we shouldn't think that government is entirely helpless, but there are a lot of hurdles. We are very cautious about government intervention in the realm of uh, speech and news. So first, you have a lot of uh, proof that you need to gather uh, under the uh, First Amendment to show that there are are problems that you've properly balanced out very important government issues uh, with uh, 
uh, are concerns for free speech. Uh, next, you have to show that you're not trying to um, disfavor particular perspectives or views or elevate particular favored speakers. It has to be what we call content neutral. Um, and uh, uh, then there's the question of uh, how it's actually implemented. Some tools like trying to promote competition uh, are generally regarded very favorably under the First Amendment. So um, trying to bring, say, antitrust actions against companies like Facebook, um, which may have uh, dominant uh, market power, is very different from trying to directly police what companies like Facebook actually put in their news feed. And let me ask you this. Should platforms like Twitter and Facebook be treated as publishers? This would make them liable for content published on their sites the way newspapers are. Well, it actually wouldn't. I mean, this is this is a common misconception about how Section 230 works. And uh, there's a reason I spent two chapters in, in the book talking about this issue specifically. Um, newspapers actually create content, and they're very different. Um, what uh, uh, Facebook does and uh, other and Twitter and others is kind of halfway between um, a newspaper and a telephone. Telephone, we don't hold them responsible for what anybody says over the telephone network. They're a dumb pipe and they don't have anything to do with it. Newspapers actually, you know, write up the stories and review every single advertisement. They're fully responsible. Social media is in this odd place in between um, where it's not really clear what the liability would be in each case. Um, in a lot of places, it's more like, say, book publishers or uh, uh, distributors where um, you wouldn't really be liable for uh, uh, a lot of what people don't like. You'd probably be exposed to more liability than they have now. But a lot of the things that uh, people are trying to get at, like uh, harmful hate speech or deliberate uh, disinformation about uh, elections or about COVID-19, it's not so clear that uh, uh, even if you got rid of Section 230 that uh, the companies would be uh, responsible. Definitely. Uh, what we really yeah. need to do is think very carefully um, and come up with a new law that actually goes to the problems that we're trying to solve in a First Amendment-friendly fashion. A lot of gray area. Well, thank you so much, Harold Feld of the organization Public Knowledge. Thank you for having me. Two weeks to the day after the Wisconsin Supreme Court overturned Governor Tony Evers' safer-at-home order, the state has set a one-day record for new coronavirus cases. 642 positive cases were identified in the past 24 hours, bringing the total to 16,565. That means the number of currently active cases increased by more than 10 percent after the stay-at-home order was overturned. Additionally, additionally, the day was the deadliest so far as 22 people died, bringing the state's death toll to 539. As states and cities reopen at their own speed, Southern California officials are unveiling what life will be like for the tens of millions who live, work and shop there. Gianni Aponte has the latest on the new normal. Residents of Los Angeles will be able to re-enter all commercial stores in the county, many of which remained completely closed during the last 10 weeks or were only delivering merchandise purchased online. 
I like it a lot because being at home for about two months with this coronavirus is too much, and I already want to go to eat at restaurants and go shopping with my family. We're in the house and we want to get out. In addition to the mandatory use of masks and social distancing, stores will have to restrict the number of customers to half their capacity. Todos los negocios minoristas pueden abrir de nuevo para recibir clientes dentro de sus tiendas. All retail businesses can reopen to receive their customers again. With some measures and with great care, we can return to the stores. The shops have already started to reopen, and it is essential that they do so in order to survive, as people can also have some relief and employees can go back to work. Ironically, the reopening of stores is happening at a time when Los Angeles County registered 1,843 new coronavirus cases just over the Memorial Day holiday weekend. Este número de nuevos casos es un record, pero también es this number of new cases is a record, but it also reflects the weekend, the three days, and the amount of tests. This is Gianni Ponte for U News. Across the country, potentially dangerous conditions at meatpacking plants have led to concerns for thousands of immigrants who work at those facilities. Pedro Rojas spoke to a Texas family about the peril they now face. Due to nearly 3,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases in Amarillo, Texas, local meat processing plants remain under the watchful eye of the government officials, as they have been identified as a primary contributor to the outbreak in Northwest Texas. U News spoke exclusively with the wife of one of the Hispanic workers who tested positive, and even though it is unclear if he is contagious or has evenly fully recovered, she says that he has been allowed to return to work. I called the city to those who talked to us every day and asked if we needed to go to get tested again in order for him to go back to work. They told us it is not necessary, just go back to work with a paper, she says. Dr. Ramon Godoy, who is a local activist and directs a local newspaper, also confirmed the claim. We know that there are lots of people returning to work, even with symptoms. I have spoken with people who are already working and claim to still not feel well, Dr. Godoy says. Texas Governor Greg Abbott visited Amarillo to reveal the results of the massive amount of testing done in the area by the search response team he recently sent and highlighted that the number of cases and death are going down. Amarillo has turned the corner on its pathway uh, toward uh, a positive, effective resolution of this particular hotspot. However, a number of meat plant workers have died and at least two families have filed lawsuits. The governor also warned of the possibility of new COVID-19 spikes. Meanwhile, the fear of having deal with the pandemic again, it is clear among the residents. What worries you the most? That he gets infected again, he got really sick, the wife of the worker says. The importance of keeping the meat processing plants open in Amarillo, Texas is really high because according to local leaders, these plants produce 25% of the meat that is consumed across the United States. In McAllen, Texas, Pedro Rojas, U News. More of U News after this short break.
Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your News, your world, You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. Like so many other New York City businesses, a well-known restaurant in the South Bronx was forced to close because of coronavirus. But the owners took the opportunity to reimagine their role in the community, hoping to give back to those on the front lines. As Blanca Rosa Vilches explains, the effort has become a family affair. Hoshimilko is a restaurant in the South Bronx whose flavors attract clients for more than 15 years. Susana Mata brings the flavors of her natal Puebla, but the restaurant that her family built was about to shut down because of coronavirus until they got a phone call from Meals for Heroes. Meals for Heroes specifically partners with local family restaurants, so not national chains. Um, and we wanted to have a variety of different types of foods to deliver to our healthcare heroes who are caring for COVID-19 patients. The proposal was to cook for the medical staff caring for patients with coronavirus. We couldn't have made it. Uh, even with the loans that they were giving uh, to, to all businesses, uh, yeah, it was just not going to be able to keep the light on, pay workers, and you know, all this, there's some stuff here that uh, have an expiration date, and if they're not consumed in three days, four days, they're gone. A project so intense that requires the participation of the whole family, even the 11 years old grandchild, and that excites Susana. Susana says that she gets emotional when she realizes that doctors and nurses who save lives will be eating her cooking. In eight weeks, they have made more than 2,000 meals. In the Bronx, New York, Blanca Rosa Vilches, U News. And now that Tom Hanks no longer has the coronavirus, he's giving back. Hanks shared photos on Instagram indicating he's donating plasma to help others with the virus. Plasma from recovered people like Hanks may have antibodies that could potentially help those fighting the illness. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.